So welcome to the next GenCast. My name's Nish Manek. I'm a GP in Cambridge, although I'm currently on maternity leave. And for that reason, in case you're wondering, that's why the podcast episodes might be a bit less frequent over the coming year. So this episode was actually recorded back in June to give you some context. And it's taken me some time to edit because my baby actually appeared 36 hours after this conversation. So this episode is number 30, and it's with none other than Professor Sir Michael Marmot. And spending an hour with him recording this was an absolute privilege. Definitely something to tick off my bucket list. Here's a preview of what's to come. I don't know that you need to know this, but my self-image has never been as a rebel or a radical. My self-image has never been... There was someone who wants to tear down the citadel or or push against the traces. You know, I just put one foot in front of another. And so I did, wasn't doing it to be a rebel. I was doing it because I didn't want what the paths laid out for me didn't seem the right paths to be traveling if what I wanted to do was understand the social determinants of health. So Professor Sir Michael Marmot is a Professor of Epidemiology at University College London. And as many of you will know, his work has established and legitimised the phrase social determinants of health in health policy and medical circles. Sir Michael Marmot's approach has changed how clinicians, public health experts and governments think about health inequity. And because of his influence, clinicians today have ways both to talk about social conditions and to address them through community partnerships, a practice that you'll probably know as social prescribing. Today, he directs University College London Institute of Health Equity. His work has been cited more than 250,000 times, and his review has spread from the Eastern Mediterranean in 2019 to Manchester in 2021. So you might have seen Sir Michael Marmot's reports, you might have read his influential books, including The Health Gap, or maybe like me, you've heard him speak and been blown away. But for this conversation, I really wanted to learn a bit more about him, the man behind the title. Hopefully by the end of this episode, you'll have an idea of his upbringing and early influences, exactly what made him so interested and so frustrated by health inequalities and what we can all do in whatever role we have in the NHS to help. So here's episode 30 with Sir Michael Marmot. So Sir Michael Marmot, welcome to the Next Gen Cast. It's an absolute honour to have you on the podcast. I am slightly pinching myself that I get to do this. You're, you know, you're the leading authority on health inequalities, not just in the UK, of course, but across the world. You've changed the way that we talk and think about the subject, and it's it's almost impossible to even mention health inequalities without someone mentioning you or your work. So thank you so much for choosing to spend some time with me today. It's my pleasure. So I want to really spend this conversation understanding more about you as a leader and your own journey. I think lots of people listening will be quite familiar with your work. But just in case there are people listening who aren't, could you perhaps just summarise some of the key messages that really encapsulates your work, please? Well, the first key message is that when we think about inequalities in health, 
they are not confined to poor health for the poor. The poor do have bad health. But in country after country and in situation after situation, what we find is a social gradient. So, for example, if in England we classify people by where they live, classify where they live by level of deprivation, what you find is the more deprived the area, the shorter the life expectancy, the higher the mortality. And that's really key because people ought to be in favor of reducing poverty. That's a good thing to do. But reducing inequality, that's more challenging. And the gradient means that we need, yes, of course, to address poverty, but we need to address relative disadvantage. If everybody below the very top has higher mortality than those at the top, it means we're all involved. And we need to address the relatively poor health of everybody below the top. So the first key insight is the social gradient in health. The second is that that's not a fixed property of society. The social gradient can get steeper and it can get shallower. And that means we can make things worse and we can make things better. And the thrust of my work over these many years is we know a great deal about how to make things better. And when things did get worse, such as since 2010 in Britain, when things have been getting worse, the gradient's been getting steeper, the inequality's bigger, life expectancy for the poorest people has been going down. We've got a fair handle on why that happened. Policies of austerity, disinvestment in the public sector, increasing social and economic inequalities. We've got a fair handle on why that happened. And the third key insight, is, which was brought home by COVID, but it goes back to the start of my life in public health and epidemiology, which is there are important ethnic differences that are not captured by socioeconomic disadvantage. They are in part due to socioeconomic disadvantage, but only in part. And I've now added to my recommendations uh, that we need to deal with racism, discrimination, and their consequences. So that's a long answer to three key insights. The gradient, we know, second, we know a lot about the causes and therefore what to do about it. And third, that there's another major source of inequality, which is racial ethnic differences. Thank you, Michael. And that's um, it's not a long answer. You're covering an entire career's worth of, of work that's there. Good. So thank you. And um, I think we will come on to talk about some of those in more depth. But for now, if you don't mind, I'd like to just ask a bit more about you, if that's okay, and, and your your life and your journey as a leader. Now, you talk a lot in, in your work about the importance of early childhood development and influences in childhood. So I'm curious to know about your own childhood and what influenced that. I understand that when you were four, you moved to Sydney and that's where you were raised. What was life like for you during that time at home? Well, there were 
two things going on. Um, one is it was a you know, nice middle class life playing cricket in the street with a you know a fruit box as the wicket and uh, kicking a rugby ball or whatever. And a few years ago, I was asked to give a talk to a local synagogue on how um, my work in the big wider world might have been influenced by my Jewish background. And I went to talk to who was then the chief rabbi of Reform Judaism. And I said, there were two questions in my mind. One was the autobiographical question. Uh, was my approach to what I do influenced by my Jewish background? The second was the more theoretical question about, was there something in Jewish thinking, theology, philosophy that was consistent with my approach to social justice and health? And I said to this rabbi, I thought that the autobiographical question was intensely uninteresting. The much more interesting was the theoretical question. He said, I disagree completely. I think the autobiographical question is intensely interesting. And I'm not religious in any overt sense of the word, agnostic, uh, whatever. But I think reflecting alongside this, because you asked about what influence my home life had alongside playing cricket in the street and kicking a rugby ball was a reflection of the importance of social justice that part of you know my father uh, was not a rich man but part of what he earned went to charity and there was a commitment to the community from both my parents um, part of what they did was community work. So there was always another dimension to it. And I don't think that's specifically Jewish, but that's where it came from in my case. And was it a very sort of academic household? or No, no, it wasn't. Both my parents grew up in poverty in the East End of London, um, typical immigrant story. And they had they grew up in poverty, had to leave school at 14. And neither of my parents completed high school out of necessity, but they had intense respect for education. So it wasn't academic in any conventional sense. Um, and none of my parents' generation went to university. My two brothers didn't do university degrees, but my parents had intense respect for education. So although it wasn't an academic environment, and perhaps if it was, I might have spent less time aiming a cricket ball at a fruit box and thinking <laughs> I'd be the next on Bradman and more time on more academic pursuits. That said, I went to a selective, you know, the equivalent of a grammar school. Do you think that's maybe why you wanted to make the most of those educational opportunities because your parents never had them? Oh, they were desperate for me to. Um, there was a sense that almost that I owed it to them. Uh, that was They were desperate for me to have the opportunities that they did not have. And it's a very immigrant story. Mm. You know? uh, I don't know what your background is, but to, 
you know, it's a very immigrant story where immigrants want their children to have education. Uh, it's a way out of the relative disadvantage. So it, it is a very immigrant story to have respect for education and see that a way out of poverty and disadvantage. Mm, that very much resonates with my own upbringing. So I understand. So um, I said at the start that you are, without a doubt, the leading voice on health inequalities. But I've also heard you say that there was a time when you didn't even know what epidemiology was. So I'm curious to know, where did it all start? Where did you really start to see medicine as, as failed prevention, to quote you? That was as a medical student, and I was not well read. Um, I, you know, I'd like to say I'd read all the major um, theoretical views about society and politics and so on. It, not true. I was not well read. So it very much came from me. And th that phrase, uh, medicine's failed prevention, which was my own phrase, I think treating cancer with surgery, it seems so crude, you know, that, and I didn't know much about the causes, um, subsequently, I realized that probably half of cancer is preventable by combination of, you know, non-smoking and better diet. Wow. I didn't know that at the time, but still, it seemed pretty crude to wait till somebody got cancer. And then, and at the time, you know, radical mastectomies, the approach was to remove more and more of the woman. Um, wow, this was desperate and that's not done anymore. And then I thought, well, what else would you do surgery for? Car crashes? Well, couldn't we prevent crashes? Now, I had a crash on my bicycle and fractured my femur. So I'm very grateful for the NHS and for surgeons to patch me up. But so I went through and thought, you know, most of surgery should be avoidable by prevention. And then I thought, well, what about medicine? I was, as a junior doctor, but I was already thinking this as a medical student, working in a chest ward, and we would get patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or asthma. They'd come in in acute attacks. We'd patch them up, send them home, and see them again in a little while. And similarly, patients with... Uh, ischemic heart disease. We'd, they'd come in in cardiac failure or chest pain or whatever. We'd patch them up. Oh, gosh, here he is back again. And I thought, there's got to be a better way than this. Prevention. That was one part. And the other part, which again, I formulated in this rather crude way, I said, you know, we use the teaching hospital that I was training in and then a junior doctor in was in in a city and it was a migrant area. There were a lot of, at that stage, um, from what was Yugoslavia, Italy, Greece, uh, and people would come into the accident emergency department with stomach pain and we're told, give them a bottle of white mixture and send them home. And it seemed to me then that people were coming into hospital with problems in their lives. 
and we were giving them a bottle of white mixture. That didn't seem to me a good solution for problems in their lives. And then mental health, good heavens. Already uh, the view I had of mental health was one of social causation, which may or may not be entirely correct, but there's certainly evidence for it now. And the view was, well, you, you can't deal with that. You've just got to give out some pills. I mean, I was like a lot of people doing clinical medicine, loved the contact with patients, the real lives. And it's very rewarding if you can help someone get better. Well, in epidemiology and public health, there are no grateful patients who knit you a woolly sweater for Christmas. But uh, I felt there had to be a better way to do this. And so when I was introduced to the idea that there was a better way to do it, I jumped at it. And that idea was go off to Berkeley, California and do a PhD in epidemiology. I get the impression it was quite an unusual way of thinking at the time. I, I wonder if you were very much going against the grain of what people around you were saying. So when you vocalise these ideas of, of, as you said, you know, what's the point of patching people up and then sending them back to where they came from? What did other people around you say? Well, there was huge pressure. You know, I was in a teaching hospital. Um, the obvious thing to do would was to apply to be a registrar in internal medicine and do my the equivalent of the Australian equivalent of the MRCP. And that's what you do. And if you're a bit more academic incli academically inclined, there might be some opportunity to do some research while training in internal medicine. And I remember it very clearly. I had to apply by the 31st of August and came five o'clock that Friday afternoon. I hadn't put my application in and I felt totally liberated because that isn't what I wanted to do. And people said to me, why didn't you apply? Big mistake. Once you get off the ladder, very hard to get back. People didn't know what I was talking about. I mean, I was, had been doing some research in asthma and respiratory medicine. And the professor of medicine said, you know, don't go off to Berkeley, come and stay and you can do it here. But there was nobody doing it there was nobody pursuing that kind of research that I knew at the University of Sydney. So people really thought it was a bit odd. And for a long time, they thought it was odd. I mean, even when I went to Berkeley, I did my PhD. I was offered a job in Berkeley, but I decided to come to London. And I was a lecturer and senior lecturer at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And a professor of medicine telephoned me uh, from a medical school not far away. And he said, community medicine, as it was then called, wasn't called public health then, community medicine is a fourth-rate discipline for second-rate minds. Uh, would you come and give us a lecture? And I said, after such a gracious invitation, <laughs> how could I refuse? So that was the view of the professor of medicine. It's a fourth-rate discipline for second-rate minds. 
could you come and give us a lecture? And when I was suggested I apply for the professorship at University College Hospital Medical School in the Middlesex, at the interview, um, again, the professor of medicine said, why should we have this discipline? Why do we need it? And that was the view. And I remember one, <laughs> again, a different professor, again, a different professor of medicine. There was a, a kind of turning point when a former secretary of health and welfare in the US uh, was visiting UCL. And of course, I wasn't asked to meet them. You know, why would they be interested in me? And this former secretary or secretary and deputy secretary said, UCL, UCL, doesn't Michael Marmot work at UCL? And the professor said, yes, yes, he does. But it never occurred to him that these visiting dignitaries from the US might want to meet me. I mean, I was in this fourth-rate discipline for second-rate minds. But when he had huge respect for these visitors, and when the one thing they knew about our medical school is that I worked there, he then approached me in a slightly different way. Then when he realized I was getting research grants from the Medical Research Council, British Heart Foundation, the US National Institutes of Health. Hang on, what's this chap doing that he's attracting all this research funding? Maybe we should take, pay some attention. But that was a long haul. It's fascinating to hear, Michael, because now people probably roll out the red carpet for you and falling over themselves trying to get some time with you and thinking about all the accolades that you've subsequently won and imagining that that was what people were saying at the time. The, um, the, the fourth rate discipline for second rate minds, you know, rings true slightly sometimes for general practice as well. People say that, say that about GP. Yeah, I mean, now that I have 20 honorary doctorates, um, <laughs> there are clearly 20 universities that don't share that view. Absolutely. You used the word liberated earlier, but I mean, taking that alternative route from a very conventional, traditional career structure, especially at that time. So it's not as uncommon now, but that was what, 50 years ago. Was it not slightly scary? Well, it, it was a bit, of course. And I don't know that you need to know this, but my self-image has never been as a rebel or a radical. Or My self-image has never been that was someone who wants to tear down the citadel or, or push against the traces. You know, I just put one foot in front of another. So I did, wasn't doing it to be a rebel. I was doing it because I didn't want what the paths laid out for me didn't seem the right paths to be traveling if what I wanted to do was understand the social determinants of health. Now, I didn't have that language, social determinants of health. I hadn't formulated, it took me some many years later to formulate that language, but that is what I was talking about. And I kind of knew that's what I wanted to do, but there wasn't an obvious 
path to do it. And just pursuing the obvious paths didn't seem like the right thing to do. In retrospect, it seems almost foolhardy to jump on into the deep without knowing whether I had a life raft or could swim. And now, that said, going off to the University of California, Berkeley, uh, hardly seems like jumping into the unknown. I mean, one of the great universities of North America. But I must say, I did um, more than once as I was walking in sandals from epidemiology class to one in anthropology or sociology thinking, what am I doing? <laughs> Aren't I supposed to be a doctor? I'm trained to see sick people and do something. And I'm going off to learn about anthropology or sociology or philosophy. Is that, is that what I should be doing at this stage of my life? So I did have a few, you might say, normal anxiety thoughts. On the other hand, wow, it was wonderful. You know, and the research that I was um I was asked if I'd like to do it, and I said no, um, because it's your study, not mine. I want to design my own study. It was what I did my PhD on was a study of men of Japanese ancestry living in Japan, Hawaii, and California. And as the Japanese migrate across the Pacific, the rate of heart disease goes up and the rate of stroke goes down. And the person who was going to be my PhD supervisor, Len Sein, said, would you like to do your PhD on this study? I said, no, I want to design my own study. And common sense prevailed. It took years to do that, to gather the data. And so what I did, there were two parts to it. One, just documenting that rise of heart disease. But the second was devising measures of acculturation so that we could look at Japanese living in California and look at those who were raised in a more traditional Japanese way and living in a more Japanese cultural and social milieu compared to those who are more acculturated, raised in a more Western way and living in a more Westernized milieu. And what you said a few moments ago when talking about the migrant experience, I'm sure it's something that you will understand. Uh, degrees of acculturation, do you become more Westernized, Anglicized or traditional? And what I showed in my PhD was those who were more part of the Japanese culture in San Francisco had low rates of heart disease, more like the rates in Japan. And those who were more westernized had rates that were more like the prevailing white American rates. And the big question is, yeah, yeah, but that's probably because they just changed their diet and were eating more hamburgers and french fries and we showed no it wasn't that uh, yes they did change their diet but it was social cultural psychosocial not just plasma cholesterol blood pressure smoking dietary acculturation 
the reason I was doing that research and and what I found and published sensitized me to the importance of the social and cultural environment at that stage, not social and economic inequalities. Uh, that wasn't a big part of what we were looking at. It was more, as I've described, the idea that Japanese culture had stress-reducing devices that protected people, and that would then lower the risk of heart disease. And that indeed is what I showed in my PhD. Thank you, Michael. It's a fascinating piece of work, and I'm glad you decided to run with that feeling of liberation and, and go and do that, even if it was against the grain of what other people were doing at the time. And I think that really started to turn the tide of how people were thinking about what you termed the social determinants of health. But thinking about your, we've, we've learned a lot about you and growing up and how you got into this. If we move on to think about your career and some of the work that you've done, I'd like just to ask you about some of the hard parts of, of the work that you've done. So if you don't mind, if firstly, thinking about politics and the role that plays. So I heard you say on Desert Island Disc some years ago that what I bring to the debate is evidence, not doing the skullduggery of politics. And I want to unpick that a little bit, if you don't mind. So you've spent a, an absolute lifetime, as you've already started to describe, amassing all this evidence and insight. But especially early on in your career, successive governments and decision makers didn't really take much notice, from what I understand. Margaret Thatcher famously said, how can there be a societal gradient when there's no society? So, I mean, that strikes me as being incredibly frustrating for you, and yet you kept going. What did you think about it at the time? What It was frustrating, but what I thought about was I really wanted to do good research. And I thought, I remember, and again, I've written about this um, wonderful man with the wonderful name, Fraser Mustard, heard about the Whitehall study and my studies of the social gradient that I described at the beginning of our conversation. And so he came over from Canada to meet me. And he said, the social gradient, what you've described in the Whitehall study, has enormous political implications. And I said, not in Britain. Margaret Thatcher's the prime minister. And for the reasons you just said, it has no political implications. He said, well, it does in Canada. Come over to Canada and talk to us. So I did. And they really took it up and ran with it. And there were um, articles in the Globe and Mail, the um, Toronto-based newspaper, and so on. And they really ran with it. But I was still doing the research, but it had no political implications in Britain because they really didn't want to know. And in a way, it was pure curiosity-driven research. Now, when you do research in public health, and I suspect it's the same in primary care, in general practice, the way you frame a research question implicitly, if not explicitly, is how would the information from my research change things? And that's, it might not I mean, that gets you into the political process, but you don't yourself have to be involved in the politics. But as I say, that's the implicit 
approach. Um, I'm doing it out of curiosity, but in theory, at least, depending what I find, it may lead to change, which would improve health. And in the case of the work that I was doing, reduce health inequalities. And I was able to attract funding for the Whitehall 2 study. And then for our studies in Central and Eastern Europe, the former communist countries, health and transition, and for continued ethnic work, work on ethnic inequalities. And the implication was, in theory at least, our findings should be relevant to political action to change things. But it was theory for 18 years. It was theory from 1979 in Britain till 1997. Then the government changed. And within days, they announced that they had invited Sir Donald Acheson to set up a committee on health inequalities. And Sir Donald invited me to be a member of the scientific advisory group for his inquiry. So within days, pure research became applied research. Suddenly, the fact that some of us under the radar had continued doing research on inequalities, not many of us, became highly relevant. What do we know? What do we know? How can we inform uh, the generation of policy? And so we had Atchison and then things moved on. Um, so I... I kept plugging away at what I thought was important. And that's why I say what I said before. I've never had the self-image as a radical or someone breaking down the barriers, but putting one foot in front of the other, doing things that I thought were the right things to do and not being pushed into doing something different. And in fact, when I was going to apply to the Medical Research Council to support this research, I was told by somebody, oh, nobody's interested in that inequalities question anymore. That was the zeitgeist, you know, in Thatcher's government. And I ignored that good advice and plugged ahead. It was around 1990, and the chief medical officer of the day had a committee on health of the nation. And he invited me to prepare the background paper on cardiovascular disease. What could we do to improve the health of the nation on cardiovascular disease? And so I said all the usual stuff about changing diet to lower plasma cholesterol, lowering blood pressure, trying to reduce smoking levels, and so on. And then I thought, for the longest time, do I say something about social inequalities? And I thought, if I do talk about inequalities in heart disease, they may bin the whole paper. And then what I say about smoking and diet and physical activity gets and blood pressure control gets forgotten. On the other hand, if I don't say anything, this is Orwell. This is, you know, 1984, the party has won. Self-censorship. So... I metaphorically gnawed my pencil and I put in the paper and I said, if 
we are going to reduce the toll of cardiovascular disease. We have to address inequalities. And there are three reasons for doing it. That if you don't address them, and let's say only the better off half of the population benefits, you, you, they've got to benefit by twice as much. If you've got a goal, you know, if you want to reduce heart disease by 20% and only half benefits, you've got to reduce by 40% in that half. So there's the very practical reason. Secondly, if you addressed inequalities, the strategies you addressed might be different. And thirdly, it's wrong. It's immoral. And so I put that right at the front. I thought, no, no half measures here. Go for the full. So I put the paper in, and what they did was they went snip, 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 snip. They cut out all the inequality stuff. Oh, no. Talked about smoking and blood pressure and cholesterol and physical activity. And then I think it was something like Appendix N, Paragraph 13. <laughs> uh, they said there are variations in health, but these are very complex and little understood. So that was 1990. That was the response of the Chief Medical Officers Committee on Health of the Nation. It was just, it was pure research. There was no, mm. there are variations and they're little understood. So that's what I spent 18 years in the UK dealing with, that no one was the least bit interested in the research I was doing. I got good funding for it from mm -hmm. lots of different sources, but policy implications, none at all. Thank goodness for Canada and other places. Mm, and thank goodness you weren't, you know, you weren't demoralised by that. As you said, you just kept plugging away, even though many others weren't and following your curiosity. And you say you're not a rebel, but you clearly internalised this cause of social justice. It was it was clearly important to you to continue, even if you didn't have the backing of either your peers, as you described before, or policymakers at that time. But taking that point more broadly, I'm interested to understand how you persuade people who are not interested in the work that you're doing. And I was thinking about this as, you know, you talk to policymakers and politicians, even now, I'm sure, who are very much focused on short term priorities. You might talk to clinicians who are very much focused on the patient in front of them and maybe sharpening their tools to, to fix that patient. You talk to the general public who are very much influenced by just what they see in their own environments, not what everyone else across society is experiencing. So you have a particularly difficult job as a leader to try and bring all these people on side. How, how do you go about doing that? What's your strategy? Well. My strategy, which may be only partly successful, I mean, I was briefing, I'm happy to talk to politicians in the government, in the Lib Dems, in the Labour Party. I'm happy to talk to politicians. I want, I want the government of the day to act. And if the government of the day doesn't act, I want the next government to act. You know? So I, I try not to make this party political. But I was um, talking to the shadow cabinet and one uh, politician asked me your question, said, how should we get our message across? And I said, 
I can't tell you as a politician how you should get your message across. I can tell you what I do. I tell the truth. I argue from the evidence. And I engage people in a spirit of social justice. That's what I do. Can you imagine arguing with Trumpist Republicans in the US, telling the truth, arguing from the evidence and engaging people in a spirit of social justice? Get you absolutely nowhere. Could you imagine going on Fox News and saying what the evidence shows is that COVID vaccine uh, protects against COVID? Americans, you know, right-wing Americans are dying of COVID because they're impervious to the evidence and because um, people on Fox News tell them that there's no evidence that the vaccine, or they say that Bill Gates has got a microchip in the vaccine that will whatever, they tell them all sorts of garbage and people believe it. So if you tell me my strategy is not terribly effective at getting through to populist liars, you're right. And that's why I say what I do. I don't know how to deal with that panoply of misinformation that people are pushing for political purposes. I mean, the people in the US who are dying of COVID are in Trump voting counties who refuse the vaccine now. I mean, it's a fatal disease voting for Trump. And it's not one that you can combat simply with my strategy of tell the truth, argue from the evidence, and engage people in the spirit of social justice. But that is what I do. And my experience with politicians in this country is better. I've not had conservative politicians tell me that I'm wrong. Uh, in fact, I've had conservative politicians approach me and ask for my help and advice. And they say, we've got a different approach to you, perhaps, but they take on board the evidence. So th th I've not had the same reaction. I mean, take the issue that comes up periodically, some, I'll say, well-meaning, that might be generous, um, well-meaning politician says, the problem is that poor people don't know how to cook. And I could get by on 30p a day. They're just whinging. And my response to that is to show evidence. And the evidence is that were people to try and follow the healthy eating advice, the NHS Eat Well Guide, people in the bottom 10% of household income would have to spend 74% of their income on food. This is not a problem of inability to cook or ignorance. This is a problem of poverty. So when I, for example, I was talking to a group of senior business people and one of them said, you know, the irresponsibility. And I quoted those data and I said, people in the top decile of household income spend about 5% of their income to eat healthily. If parents in the top income decile feed their children sugary fizzy drinks, I agree with you, they're being irresponsible. 
And that is personal irresponsibility. But not people in the bottom decile. They're not being irresponsible. They're being poor mm. through no fault of their own. So my way of engaging in this kind of argument is with the data, with the evidence. So if a right-wing position is to say it's all individual responsibility and a left-wing position is it's all social circumstances, I say let's stop arguing it as right-wing or left-wing. Let's look at the evidence. And you're correct that it's all a matter of individual responsibility if you're in the upper income deciles. And you're correct that it's a matter of social circumstances if you're in the bottom income deciles. That's what the evidence shows. So when you talk about the general public, more complicated, we have, to some extent, been engaging with community groups in the north of the country uh, in our work in the northwest. And the response is overwhelmingly positive. Take us seriously. We know what's impacting on our lives. Now, if you say, tell me about the cause of health inequalities, they say, oh, I can't get to see my GP. Well, of course, that's a problem. If you ask, tell me about the problems in your lives, then they give an eloquent description of the social determinants of health. The challenge is to say what you've just described are the reasons. That's the opening line of my book. They're mm. the conditions that make people sick. Thank you, Michael. It's a really important point, not to necessarily just react with emotion, but to think about bringing the evidence into, into your arguments. And you do that so beautifully all the time. You mentioned there that politicians you think are listening, but your, you know, the 10 years on report that you published just before the pandemic painted a very bleak picture. Despite this clear vision that you set out 10 years ago, you said at the start of the podcast, one of the key messages of your work was, we know how to make this better and we know how to make it worse. And essentially your report said, we've made it worse. Yes. So I guess I want to know, are they really listening at a national level? And how are you staying so hopeful throughout this? Because it was a very demoralizing report to read, especially given how much good work you've done in this area for such a long time. Well, I don't know uh, what the leadership, uh, the political leadership of, from 2010 on said to themselves. I, I'm not privy to the discussions that David Cameron and George Osborne and so on talked about. So I don't know what they told themselves, but I know what they did. And what they did was, it was as if they said, let's see what Marmot told us to do and we'll do the opposite. Now, I don't, can't, I don't believe for one moment that that's what they did. Um, you know, that's why they did it. Um, but you look at the Chancellor's changes to the tax and benefit system, it had the effect in a very neatly regressive way of making poor people poorer. You look at the funding settlements to local government, the more deprived the area, the bigger the reduction in funding. 
If you're in a poor community, the government was going to take more money away from your community than if you're in an affluent community. They probably told themselves they were equalizing the funding um, or they were waiting by age. or I don't know what they told themselves, but what they did had very clear effects. They reduced the per capita spending on education by 8% over the decade they probably told themselves well look we've got to get the public finances right we don't want to do that but uh, in the long term it'll be much better because we'll get the public finances right i presume that's what they told themselves now i remember right at the beginning asking economists friends i do have one or two who are economists i said why is it that Keynes, who was never a left-wing politician, but Keynesian economics is seen as leftist and austerity is seen as rightist? Is there something intrinsic to those analyses that made people who are more to the left support a Keynesian approach? and people who are more to the right support austerity. It was very curious, and I'm not, there probably is a good answer to it. I'm not sure what the answer is. It may be as simple. Well, Keynes said government intervention. When you've got an economic downturn, they're what Keynes called the paradox of thrift. Um, if people aren't spending, the government's got to spend to create demand. And it's the so-called counter-cyclical investment. When the economy is doing well, that's the time to save. And so what the coalition, conservative-led coalition government said, the economy is turning down, we better stop spending. And they created a deep recession. Um, and we did much worse. Our recovery from the global financial crisis was much slower than almost every other rich country. So the overall macroeconomic policy was mistaken. It turned out austerity was a political choice and a mistaken political choice. It wasn't good for the globe, for the macro economy, and it certainly wasn't good for the lives people were able to lead. So they made this wrong-headed political choice, the wrong call out of ideology in a way that damaged people's lives. And they acted as if they didn't care about the damage to people's lives or lied about it. So it was a miserable story, a mm. miserable story. Um, this wasn't Harold Macmillan saying you never had it so good, you know, going back to previous kind of conservative government. This was a government pursuing an ideological driven policy, oblivious, apparently oblivious to the ill effect on people's lives. And what I documented is that life expectancy went down mm. for the poorest people and health inequalities got bigger and the overall improvement in life expectancy slowed dramatically. So you can't do that. You can't get away with that set of public policies and tell yourself, oh, we're just cutting out waste or creating a sleeker society. And it was an ideological project 
that benefited a small group of people and the, the complete cant of saying we're all in this together uh, was just that cant. And now looking forward, do you still feel that we can turn the tide on this? Well, I didn't come back to the last part of your question is why was I not demoralized? Mm. Um, irritated, annoyed, but not demoralized. And the reason I wasn't demoralized, to come back to an earlier question about the different um, groups, the Royal College of Physicians, I thought it was one particular president that was sort of interested in this. It wasn't. The Royal College of GPs, the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health, the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the Royal College of Psychiatrists, they all beat a path to my door. These, for me, you know, what I described early on in my career, being fourth-rate discipline, now I had these medical royal colleges saying, come, we want to talk to you. We want to do things, you know, we'll give you honorary fellowships. And then when I published my 2020 review, the Royal College of Physicians took the leadership of getting the other medical royal colleges, the ones that I've mentioned, to join with them and write an open letter to the prime minister urging him to act on the recommendations in my report. And then working on that, they convened a health inequalities alliance that now has more than 200 members. I couldn't be more pleased. Second, local government approached me. Coventry first declared itself a Marmot city. Greater Manchester said, well, if Coventry can do it, we can do it. And so we'll be a Marmot city region. We produced a report, Build Back Fairer in Greater Manchester. Cheshire Merseyside said, well, if Greater Manchester can do it, we can do it. So we published our report for Cheshire and Merseyside last week. We're working in Lancashire and Cumbria. North of Tyne combined authorities approached us. Luton, Leeds, Waltham Forest, the Southwest. Wow. So we've got the Royal Colleges and the medical charities and the like interested. We've got local government all around the country, different organizations. So, yeah, I'd like national governments to do things differently, but I'm not sitting on my hands waiting. Um, we're working with local government and we're working globally. I mean, in the wake of the WHO Commission on Social Determinants of Health, uh, three of the WHO regions, firstly, the European region, asked me to do a report on social determinants and the health divide in the European region, and then the Pan-American Health Organization. And then during the pandemic, we published Build Back Fairer in the Eastern Mediterranean region of WHO, North Africa and the Middle East, uh, the Commission on Social Determinants of Health in EMRO. And we're now talking with the Western Pacific region we got the Chinese University of Hong Kong to set up an Institute of Health Equity. And I'm a visiting professor there. So I couldn't be more pleased. 
So it sounds like a sort of bottom-up change and then maybe the government will pretend that they were in favour of it the whole time. Well, that's, what <laughs> like. that's what I'd like. Um, so, Michael, your, your book, The Health Gap, as we've already said, opens with the line, you know, why treat people and then send them back into the situation that made them sick? And that often echoes in my mind when I'm seeing patients in general practice. And I think individual GPs can feel quite powerless to contribute to this tackling of health inequalities. For people listening, so maybe young GPs at the start of their career, GPs who are stepping into leadership roles too, what advice would you give them as a final question for for what we could do to help? I'm always cautious about giving advice to people because especially young um, people early on in their career, the danger is they might listen to me and I have no um, <laughs> how people should behave. Um, but we're really interested, I'm really interested in people working in primary care who are making links, um, who are saying part of my responsibility as a doctor is recognizing the conditions in which my patients live and not i mean take the obvious one if you're treating someone who's homeless or let's say a rough sleeper you could treat them and send them back to sleeping rough but that doesn't make much sense does it you might say well i can't take them home with me so what am i supposed to do well you what you do is you work with people who are dealing with rough sleepers Um, and the homeless. Uh, You make partnerships with others. And as you know, there's a whole movement on social prescribing in primary care and general practice uh, of not just giving prescriptions for drugs, but what can you do to address housing problems, dietary problems, money Um, And some of our experience in Cheshire and Merseyside is that there are people working in healthcare who've made these links with voluntary organisations, with local authorities, who are providing other services. So don't say, it's not my job. Say, my job is better health for my patients. And if I can't do that, literally inside my office, consulting room, how can I do it? And working with others in partnership. That's such an important message to end on. Thank you. So Michael Marmot, it has been such an honour to spend that last hour with you. I'm still slightly starstruck. I've spent so many years reading your books, following your reports, listening to your talks, and really, really appreciate you spending this time really humbled to hear your your own story of growing up your leadership story and then more about the the work and and your vision on the future so thank you so so much for your time i really appreciate it my pleasure and good luck with your next steps so that was episode 30 with professor sir michael marmot and i hope you were as inspired by his stories and incredible leadership advice as i was that's it for another month we'll be back at some point soon with another episode but in the meantime if you want to keep in touch sign up to our monthly bulletin the link is in the show notes and we'll see you soon for another episode of the next gen cast